Welcome to the Rogue Journal Club, where we tear studies apart so you don't have to. The Rogue Journal Club is a Shio Sophia production, featuring long-form discussions of peer-reviewed studies, published in academic journals, and their connections to society. I'm Adrian, And I'm Gina. We'll be your hosts. A journal club is when academics at universities get together to talk about papers. But we've gone rogue. We're going to do Journal Club our way. Join us. On this episode of the Rogue Journal Club, we discuss the article, Why General Artificial Intelligence Will Not Be Realized. The article appears in a 2020 issue of Humanities and Social Sciences Communications. The author is Ragnar Feland. Yeah, so I love this paper. I have to say, I'm giving it like a, a super apple pie order rating right off the bat. I got really excited when I found this, and I don't even remember how I found it. I think I was just like on a Google Scholar free fall and uh, just happened to see it. And I was like, this is brilliant. This is like what I've been thinking about, but he's better at saying it than I am and has like the actual training to put the jargon to the to the concepts so i was gonna say what is a google scholar google scholar free fall oh when i just like look up a paper and then look up another paper and then it makes me think of another paper and then i look up another thing and then i just kind of like how did i get here (laughs) so (laughs) rabbit hole in other words yeah yeah you're just like i'm clicking on everything now so no, I thought yeah. this this was really really interesting article to read and and really one to get you thinking because it's pretty philosophical actually when it gets into it. Isn't it in? Oh no, it's in a humanities and social sciences communications. That's yeah, the, another I one where you wouldn't philosophy. expect it to be. Yeah. Although that well, seems to be the thing lately is that random stuff shows up where you don't think it should be. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole separate topic. I think I've had I've kind of been wondering if I'm imagining things or if the scientific journals are taking cues from the news and uh, doing lots of clickbait to get traffic, just like the news sites do. And the, the anyway. Yeah. But- another topic for another time. My brain doesn't have room for that one right now. <laughs> so, Play yeah, so this I was going to say, we can play with the new thing for a moment and just say, oh, here, folks, this is the article in question. Um, for those of you who watch on YouTube, we now have much better capacity to actually show the article, too, at the same time. So yep. this is going to be fun. We won't show this the whole time, but just for those of you wondering what the heck article we are talking about at this point. <laughs> yeah. So this is a provocative statement. Why ge- general artificial intelligence will not be realized um is I have no is idea how to pronounce his first name uh, his last yeah. name Ragnar makes sense I don't quite know how to pronounce his last name yeah uh, the the English speaker in me would say Fjelland but I'm sure that's very wrong no, I think he's, <laughs> yeah he's from Norway so it's a Norwegian name so I don't yeah know how to pronounce that but either way <laughs> yeah but uh hats off to uh Ragnar F guy because this is an this is like a really awesome i don't know i just really will get into it but 
haha, my my I kept wanting to scroll the image instead of the actual paper. <laughs> I'm gonna have to get this is gonna take some getting used to, but it's it looks very sweet. New digs on this Shio Sophia, um the the decor. Very so yeah. So well, shall we yeah. read the abstract first or shall we? Yeah, um I'll read it since I'm the one that found this thing. So okay. yeah. Um, all right. So the modern project of creating human-like artificial intelligence started after World War II when it was discovered that electronic computers are not just number crunching machines, but can also manipulate symbols. It's possible to pursue this goal without assuming that machine intelligence is identical to human intelligence. This is known as weak AI. However, Many AI researchers have pursued the aim of developing artificial intelligence that is in principle identical to human intelligence, which is called strong AI. So weak AI is less ambitious than strong AI and therefore less controversial. So weak AI, well, we'll talk about that. However, there, is a, there are important controversies related to weak AI as well. This paper focuses on the distinction between artificial general intelligence, AGI, and artificial narrow intelligence, ANI. So there's different types of AI. Although AGI may be classified as weak AI, it is close to strong AI because one chief characteristic of human intelligence is its generality. Although AGI is less ambiguous than strong AI, there were critics almost from the very beginning. One of the leading critics was the philosopher Hubert Dreyfus, who argued that computers who have no body, no childhood, and no cultural practice could not acquire intelligence at all. One of Dreyfus's main arguments was that human knowledge is partly tacit, meaning we can't explain it in words, therefore cannot be articulated and incorporated into a computer program. However, today one might argue that new approaches to AI research have made this argument obsolete. Deep learning and big data are among the latest approaches, and advocates argue that they will be able to realize AGI. A closer look reveals that although development of AI for specific purposes, the ANI, like the weak AI, has been impressive, such as like chat GPT and all that good stuff, we have not come much closer to developing artificial general intelligence. This article further argues that this is in principle impossible and it revives Hubert Dreyfus's argument that computers are not in the world. So mm -hmm. basically the whole paper is elaborating on that. And I love this because seeing and playing with chat GPT and watching everyone freak out about it and all the Silicon Valley people that are like, we're, we're almost there. We're almost to the future. We're almost going to have artificial general intelligence. We should all be scared. Oh my God, it's going to take over. I was not convinced because chat GPT kind of sucks actually. <laughs> like, like if you, if you were to write a paper in school using chat GPT, you would probably get like a C at best oh, yeah. and only in your like intro courses, you're not going to, this would not work even in your senior level courses. So yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea with like strong AI and AGI is pretty much that. And that I, I'm glad you brought it up because that's what I thought of, too. It's just like, wow, this really alleviates the fears of AI taking over the world. You know, that, yeah. <laughs> that's the yeah. running sci-fi joke that shows up in movies and, and popular culture kind of reference that, you know, AI is going to conquer yeah. the world. AI is going to enslave all the... Think of The Matrix. There we go. That's the movie trilogy yes. that comes to mind, The Matrix. But um, not really. 
is what it yeah. seems like is the answer there. Like, like, or that we'll have data from Star Trek, like walking among us and, you know, we won't know it or, you know, they'll be better at everything than us and we are, we're going to lose our society. I, uh, and I'm not uh, obviously in the AI field, so I don't know the history of all of the different experiments that were done, but he does talk about a bunch of those things. So it was nice to get caught up. Um, oh, yeah. So... I think one other thing that this paper is going to be really useful in talking about to like the the general public, I guess, which is a phrase I hate saying, but like the YouTube viewers that may or may not be scientists, is that this hits on causation and correlation in a really interesting way. I and, really and yeah, and like the Bayesian thinking versus uh, rationalist like pop Popperian thinking. So if anyone out there is a Karl Popper fan, I'm a little bit of a Karl Popper evangelist, which is probably kind of against what Popper would want me to be like, but nevertheless. <laughs> um, so yeah, that like sort of hypothesis driven thinking where you have to make a claim and then test it versus Bayesian, where you come into it a little bit like hypothesis naive, where you, you're, you're doing like a, more of an exploration so yeah, Bayesian, oh. Bayesian statistics is not necessarily hypothesis naive. It's it's more so that um, you have an a priori assumption about what something is going to be, and then your data changes what that's going to be at the end. So as mm -hmm. I was that was as was driven home to me in my Bayesian stats class, it's basically posterior equals prior times likelihood, and your likelihood function is derived from the sample data that you have, but your prior is a statistical distribution that you a priori assumed about something. Um, and so your posterior distribution of that something is informed by data and evidence real world together with your a priori assumption. So I think I not entirely yeah. from the hypothesis idea, but you are making something of a yeah. of what you think something is like before you get data with it. You have to do that with Bayesian stats. I guess with the hypothesis driven specifically, you're making a generalization. Yeah. Which with Bayesian thinking. Bayesian is much do. more specific. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Karl Popper way is like all swans are white. And then you see a black swan and you have falsified your statement. Because exactly. one counterexample is enough to disprove your statement, but you can never prove that all swans are white because uh, until you see a counterexample. Right. And then if you never see a counterexample, you don't know if that proves that all swans are white or if you just haven't seen a counterexample yet. So that's, um, that's the, the mode of, of like scientific thinking that I know the best and the Bayesian stuff never had a single class in it. I think in my, Stats 101 in grad school, they spent like a couple weeks talking about why that's different from what we were doing. And then that was as far as it went. And the rest of it, I pick up a little bit from philosophical conversations like this one. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, so you're saying that, how, what's an example of how could you flip the swans are white thing to Bayesian thinking? Like what would be a way to kind of put that into English words for the, uh, people like myself? <laughs> um, well, the way that you might look at it in a Bayesian sense is to say 
you have a spectrum from black to white and you think it's all normally distributed over here on the mostly white side with maybe some tinges of gray feathers and things like that. Okay. Um, but then you get a whole bunch of sample points and usually it's like several thousand kind of thing um, sample points and you probably have some black ones in there and depending upon that number of black ones, your distribution may shift and change at the end of it to say, oh, okay, certain amount of swans are white, certain amount of swans are black, and there's some gray area in the middle. Hmm. Okay. Or yeah. Bayesian stats is, that's a very simplified version. Bayesian stats is complicated enough that you could do like bimodal distributions at the same time where you just like literally have nothing that's gray in the middle and you have black and white. <laughs> okay. But you still have to sort of make a guess as to what you think it is and then you continue to mold it and refine it as you collect data. Yeah. So that's essentially the principle behind machine learning. It's, it is, yeah. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're training would, these computer algorithms to get better and more accurate, um, and they're getting closer and closer and closer to the truth with ever, without ever actually getting there, right. um, and yeah. And I, I would preface this, you, you've already said it for yourself, that you're, you're not an expert in machine learning. I have dabbled a teeny bit with machine learning, but I would not call myself an expert either. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're a little out of our depth, I think, in talking about this. But I think because it gets philosophical, that's kind of the fun part of this and the the stuff that to me seems relevant to um, the the cultural stuff. My phone is literally ringing during the show. I hope somebody answers that. Okay, well, I'll ring I once. That's fine. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Somebody hey, else going off with the goat scream. With what? <laughs> with goat scream. I have a goat scream ringtone. That's insane. <laughs> I hope. Can I just call you on it now? <laughs> no, hold on. I can play it for you. I can play it. I mean, yes. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, our lovely listeners and viewers. This is not uh, not part of your normal show, but um, I'm sure you all would appreciate this. But, but we are not a normal show, so I guess that works out. <laughs> Boy, that's that would probably be super awkward to have that go off in a meeting. <laughs> it, it has happened, actually. That's hilarious. <laughs> What's better is when I have my headphones in, because then it's just screaming in my ears. Oh, and then you're like, at why is, if you're making this face like... <laughs> that has happened to me, too. It's been, it's been somewhat interesting, but... <laughs> <laughs> that is a tangent that happens. We have mm -hmm. phone calls in the middle. Yeah. Good story. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I can back up and do a better job saying what I was trying to say before, which I have to save myself. So um, the, there's a lot of things that are sort of culturally relevant in this, like with sort of the, the, the left and the right stuff and the transhumanist stuff and the science denialism that we're seeing everywhere on all sides of the aisle. So I, I think that the, what was interesting is I get the sense that the AI proponents, and I've seen this in news articles and stuff like that, where, the, you know, some of the people that are in the AI world have been quoted to say that this is going to render the scientific method obsolete, because at some point our correlations are going to be so good that we won't actually need to worry about causality. And so this paper is actually arguing against that mindset, which I support arguing against that mindset. And it's not just <clears throat> because I like the scientific method. Um, 
It's because I think it works. And there are definitely cases where you need it still. Well, yeah. And I mean, they had some great, the well, not they, because there's only one author, but the author had some great examples in here of how that, how AI has failed, despite having like really high correlations. Like, I think the one example that I really liked in here was with the wolves versus huskies example. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can Let find, find it. Quick. Yep, it's at the University of Washington. Um, let's see. Where is it? Um, if I can find it. I have the I have the digital version up, so I don't know pages, but it is. <laughs> oh, hang on. Yeah, it's a couple paragraphs after AlphaGo. Oh, shoot. Wrong one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, not there. Not there. Wrong one. Doing control F on the wrong window. Oh yeah. There we go. There we Did go. you control F that up? <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> thank you. Thank uh, you. Yeah, so, I'm, so I'm good for the day here. now. <laughs> <laughs> the advantage of not having to formulate explicit rules comes at a price, though. In a traditional computer program, all the parameters are explicit. This guarantees full transparency. In a neural network, this transparency is lost. One often does not know what parameters are used. Some years ago, a team at the University of Washington developed a system that tr was trained to distinguish between huskies and wolves. This is, not, this is a task that requires considerable skill because there is not much difference between them. In spite of this system had, in spite of this, the system had an astonishing 90% accuracy. However, the team discovered that the system recognized wolves because there was snow in most of the wolf pictures. The team had invented a snow detector. Womp, 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 womp. This is what we call getting the right answer for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and you can definitely do that with super good correlations. So, yeah, and that's that's one of the problems with, I guess that would be technically like a collinearity problem where there's there the relationship is false because it's actually the snow that was really driving it. So, yeah. yeah. So that's, um, yeah. So that's a really good example. And I think, I think sometimes I don't quite understand the motivation to overturn what I, I read uh, an article where someone was talking about Popper and falsification and hypothesis testing and they called his method critical rationalism. Mm. So, so I think that's probably instead of calling it like pauperism, I'll probably call it critical rationalism from here on out. But it's the idea that I described like a few minutes ago where you, you make a general statement and then you falsify it. So people seem to really not like that for some reason. But the criticisms... There haven't really been any real substantive criticisms of Popper since that, since those no. books. And people who criticize Popper, according to this philosopher whose blog I was reading, that <laughs> usually the people criticizing Popper do so for a few reasons. One, they don't actually understand critical rationalism because they haven't read Popper's explanations. They've read other people's explanations um, and they just, or they just heard Popper was wrong and then repeat that. 
or they are unwilling to actually learn critical rationalism because they're convinced that the method they have works well well enough for them. And so right. they're not, yeah, so this is, it's been frustrating for me because I learned that stuff and then I thought like, this explains everything that I've been frustrated with for 20 years um, as far as the way that people think and learn. And, um, and I uh, forgot what I was going to say. Every time I try to write a paper responding to one of these DEI things that comes out, I feel like I'm just rewriting the open society and its enemies. And then I'm like, why bother? Someone's already done this better than I have. I should just write a paper that goes read the open society and its enemies. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But so, but yeah, this, this motivation to like poo poo critical rationalism is very odd to me. And I don't know if it's emotional and I don't want to say it's that, but these Silicon Valley people that are obsessed with AI seem to be kind of in love with themselves and their and their technology. And AI is cool, like what they call AI. But what this guy says is that that's not really AI. It's just fancy. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not that it's not AI. It's that it's weak AI. It's tailored for a specific yeah. thing. I actually got yeah. into this conversation at work and that's, and that's what they talk about in the article is it's really just most of what we think about or the amazing achievements in AI are really not human intelligence because they're only really good at this one thing over here. Yeah. Um, and I got into this conversation with a, uh, with a coworker actually. Um, and he was talking about, you know, how chat, chat GPT, you know, I tried giving it some mathematics commands and it was really, really bad. It couldn't do math. <laughs> and I'm just yeah. like, I had to talk with him about it because I think I did a video on chat GPT on the channel a while back. And yeah, that, that's because it was trained. It's called chat GPT. Its formal name as a model is called the language learning model. It's just meant to read through language to try and answer and figure out questions. It can't do math because it was never trained to do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, if you're looking yeah. for it to solve a math problem for you, it ain't gonna do that. Um, they talk. Yeah, do you remember? Her. Do you remember that episode about the propane stoves where I said that I had like asked ChatGPT to calculate uh, the rate that my house was filling up with gas, yep. and it, it calculated this like wide range of results that kind of didn't make any sense. And I remember thinking like, well, I just tweaked this one number and suddenly that changed the answer by two orders of magnitude. And that didn't seem possible to me. That, that didn't make sense to me. So I wonder looking back if that calculation, I should have just like gotten a spreadsheet out and done done it the <laughs> hard way. <laughs> you know, I would have had better results. So it's possible. Yeah. Cause that's, it's just not what chat, chat GPT was designed for. And they make a good point in talking about all of that here because this is one of the things this is why I think we encourage you to go back and read this article because of course it's linked in the description and the show notes for you. But they talk about like three, they, I'm going to keep saying they, and there's only one author. Yeah. <laughs> We're so used to these multi-authored papers. Uh, yeah. So. Get your grammar correct. Um, but there's, yeah. after Dreyfus, Hubert Dreyfus published um, what's called What Computers Can't Do. There was tremendous progress in AI. And the first one that he talks about in the milestones, I actually remember because I remember that being a big thing in the news in 97. Um, and that was IBM's Deep Blue computer, which beat the world champion of chess. 
Yeah, Jacob and I were talking about that at the table uh, at dinner right before we came in here. And he he had an interesting perspective on it. I'll share, but finish your thing because you might say the same thing. (laughs) No, I I don't. I I was I was a little kid at the time because I was like nine years old. So I don't necessarily (laughs) I don't necessarily know that I have any profound thoughts from that time. But even I remember hearing about it as as a kid. So, yeah. Uh, so my husband is very interested in chess cause he plays chess and, uh, I am not that good at chess, but I've played it a little bit so I can sort of appreciate what he's talking about. So the, apparently the, the deep blue, um, it wasn't necessarily, at least in his opinion, a fair competition because the deep blue got to train on all of Gary Kasparov's previous games. And then in between every round, they tweaked the the algorithm, and so it really it was a a, a team of grandmasters, chess grandmasters, tweaking the algorithm between each round, and Gary Kasparov was just being himself, and so it really was not man versus machine, but it was man versus a team of grandmasters and a machine. <laughs> so, well, and it was also I didn't know that, but it was also his. Um... It was his matches they were being trained on, not just some generic chess matches. So there's no guarantee that if you put him up against somebody else, put the computer against somebody else, it would actually do well. So, yeah. And yeah, had and had the had Deep Blue been trained on someone else's games, would he have beat Kasparov? Had Kasparov been able to see the computer's previous games? And you know what I mean? Like there. So there was a little imbalanced. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's. that's point the deep blue was trained on a very and much more specific than i do because i didn't know that but um much too specific kind of thing and this is this is yeah. a point that folks forget with ai but they need to remember and particularly the ai kind of thing here the sort of weak mm-hmm. ai because we're not yeah. really a strong ai or general intelligence at all as the authors argue i kind of agree with that if you can't tell but <laughs> mm-hmm. but all of these things are to some degree models. Um, models yeah. created by humans. They don't have capacity to think and create on their own outside of the kinds of things that you give them, really. Yeah. So like yeah. with chat GPT, if you give it a math problem, it fails. Yep. Yeah, it's and he makes a really, really good philosophical case for the fact that all of our AI is ANI, that we don't have actually artificial general intelligence because the way that we learn things can't always be put into words or into an algorithm that, that what tacit means is sort of like, you know, how do you know, um, we were thinking about um, when we go into a different state, you're like with self-driving cars, would the self-driving car go, oh, we're in New Jersey now, look out, you know, like, yeah, you know, just those kinds of things, like, and how can you tell, you can feel it when you cross over the border, and you're in New Jersey on the highway, you can tell by the way people drive that, like, oh, we must be in New Jersey now, and I don't know how, yeah, I don't know how I would, how I would explain how a computer should figure that out, like, so, and maybe, you know, somebody could call call me out on this and say, well, actually, blah, blah, blah. so making a general point, 
there are probably many things. It yeah. would be like the computer would have to have, like it would have to be born and grow up and be raised in a culture and sort of, you know, maybe someone could simulate that, but even so it would still have to be put into words and to patterns. So. Yeah. It's the tacit knowledge thing that you're talking about. Another way to put it would be the sort of heuristics, the heuristic shortcuts of, of the human brain that, you know, Mm -hmm. rightly or wrongly you get stereotypes about certain things that develop in the human brain you know some of it can lead to some of the most awful things that have happened in history but other times other times it's just oh it's a generalization that generally this thing happens um yeah. and that goes to the other thing they point out that ai just can't do is the causal relationships yep you know a ai can't answer that question of what would happen if i do this yeah you know? yeah the it, like um, experiential learning that is not uh, it's not the same kind of experiential learning as a training data set. It's mm. it's a lot more open ended. Um, so if we could figure out every little possible thought that we have and how that would translate into words that we could translate into an algorithm, if we could really understand how we think with that level of precision, maybe we could have AGI, but I think we probably can't. <laughs> well, not yet. So, I mean, there, there's a famous, there's a famous quote. I forget who said it. I remember the quote, but I forget who said it, which is terrible because you think I'd remember the person because it's somewhat famous. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And the person said, uh, if the brain were so simple, we could understand it. We would be so simple that we couldn't. That's yes, exactly that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and at the I same time, you probably still wouldn't be able to program a computer to think like a human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we could necessarily understand the brain of a worm with that level of granularity. There's a lot. I mean, <laughs> we might we might think we have a really good understanding, but we probably really don't. And uh, yeah, um, not being a neuroscientist, I can't really say exactly more yeah. detail than that but you get the gist of what i'm saying oh and we should preface this to tell folks because i don't i don't think we did that this this article was written before chat gpt really became a thing because this was published in 2020 yep. so i'd imagine like this article was in the drafting like late 2019 early 2020 and when it was finally published was i want to say it was july 2020 so yeah yeah, just just for reference, because this article, yeah. the author probably knew nothing about ChatGPT. Yeah, it's interesting that it's still super relevant, even with that, because um, where did he talk about this? Computers are not in the world. Um, the main thesis. I mean, that's the final concluding remark, but he gets to it yeah. toward toward the end. Um, yeah, computers yeah, I don't are even know where to. I don't know where to jump to. Uh, there's so much good stuff. Just go read it. <laughs> <laughs> I could just make the whole podcast me just reading this paper. <laughs> I know. That. I mean, that would be great. I mean, I really appreciate. Um, so I, I think maybe for, for our listeners and viewers, it might be a good idea just to read part of the section on tacit knowledge. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't, I don't think folk, most folks know that that kind of, knowledge that they have in their brain that they can't really explain all that well 
mm-hmm. how it works. Um, is, is not to, I don't know how many folks knew that that would know that that actually has some kind of a name to it. Yeah, I think um, I had heard the word tacit before, but when I read this paper, I think it really solidified what that meant. <laughs> yeah. So, so go ahead. Knowledge. Hang on, bring this up here too while we're at it. So, Dreyfus placed AI into a philosophical tradition going back to Plato. Plato's theory of knowledge was constructed on the ideal of mathematics, in particular geometry. Geometry is not about material bodies, but ideal bodies. We can acquire real knowledge of esteem by turning the attention away from the material world and direct it upwards to the world of ideal objects. Side note, there's a famous painting of Plato and Aristotle where Plato is actually pointing at the sky, you know, thinking you got to look at things up. And Aristotle's got his hand out in front of him, um, looking down. So like things of this world, the empiricism thing from Aristotle. Right. That's a cool painting. I should look up that. But yeah, this is like uh, Plato's um, idealism, the the theory of forms and ideas. Yeah, it's... Plato was all about forms and ideals, but Aristotle was all about observable real world. Yep. And it's from Aristotle's ideas that a lot of modern science is drawn. But uh, let's see. According to... Okay, Plato even criticized the geometers for not understanding their own trade because they thought they were quote doing something and their reasoning had a practical end and the subject were not in fact pursued for the sake of knowledge skills are merely opinion doxa and are relegated to the bottom of this knowledge hierarchy according to this view a minimum requirement for something to be regarded as knowledge is that it can be formulated explicitly Western philosophy has, by and large, followed Plato Plato, and only accepted propositional knowledge as real knowledge, which, for those of you thinking of science-related things, there is one thing from Plato in there, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, An exception is what Dreyfus called the anti-philosophers Merleau-Ponty, Heidegger, and Wittgenstein. He also referred to scientist and philosopher Michael Polanyi. In his book, Personal Knowledge, Polanyi introduced the expression tacit knowledge. Most of the knowledge we apply to everyday life is tacit. In fact, we do not know which rules we apply when we perform a task. Polanyi, 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 maybe? Polanyi, maybe, I don't know. Used swimming and bicycle riding as examples. Very few swimmers know that what keeps them afloat is how they regulate their respiration. When they breathe out, they do not empty their lungs. And when they breathe in, they do not inflate their, they inflate their lungs more than normal. There we go. Um, something similar applies to bicycle riding. The bicycle rider keeps his balance by turning the handlebar of the bicycle. To avoid falling to the left, he moves the handlebar to the left. And to avoid falling to the right, he turns the handlebar to the right. Thus, he keeps his balance by moving along a series of small curvatures. According to Paul Yanni, Polanyi, I'm never going to get that right. Okay. <laughs> a simple analysis shows that for a given angle of unbalance, the curvature of each winding is inversely proportional to the square of the speed of the bicycle. Hmm. But the bicycle rider does not know this and it would not help him become a better bicycle rider. <laughs> Later, Polanyi formulated this insight as, quote, we can know more than we can tell. Yeah. 
Yeah, those are much better examples than my dissing of New Jersey drivers. Apologies <laughs> if anyone in the audience is from New Jersey, but y'all better slow down. Seriously, you terrify me. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, the, the those are much better examples because it's true. Like, how you're not going to whip out your calculator and that's somehow going to make you better at bike riding. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's that's. Yeah. I, I think the other way to put it is experiential knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. Um, it's that's something that AI really can't learn. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's possible that the proponents of AI think that there's a way around that, that you could actually really understand that if you just worked hard enough. Because look, the guy was able to talk about what, like, what the rider is really doing. But then at the same time, the rider is the one that matters in this case. Yep. The, what the rider knows, because that's what you're trying to simulate is, well, how does the rider know? No one sat down and did that math for them when they were seven. They would just put them on a bike and said, go and fall down until you figure out how to not fall down. Mm -hmm. so, and I mean, they might say something. I think they say this somewhere later in the article where it's just like, when you're asked to describe it, you might reduce it to like simplest possible terms. Um, a lot of expert knowledge, however you define an expert, is a tacit kind of thing. We've just done yep. it so many times that yeah, we kind of understand. And so bringing it Ooh. down to that level is, is well, not bringing it down to that level. That doesn't sound right. But explaining something that we know tacitly and from experience is a difficult yeah. challenge as an expert. Although that tells me that you really are an expert if you figure out a good way to do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, here, like... I used to struggle with helping undergraduates understand how to evaluate the quality of a source because a lot of my ability to evaluate the quality of a source is tacit from reading a lot of sources over 20 years of an academic lifestyle and explaining to a student, like when I, when I look at a paper, there are things about certain papers that I can say, oh, is this one of those papers? But how do you teach a student how what that is? Like, so there was a guy that wrote to um, the the website once because we um, only published things that were summaries of peer reviewed papers. Right. So I, I, he had some kind of crackpot mathematical thing that he wanted to write a summary of for the website. <laughs> And I said, well, I'm not a mathematician, so I can't really evaluate how good this is. But because it was not in a peer-reviewed journal, we can't accept a summary of it. So he writes me back 11 days later with a link. And he said, it's been in, it's in a peer-reviewed journal now. And the, the person who peer-reviewed it was his friend. And the journal was like this journal they started. So technically, it was in a peer-reviewed journal. But... Really? That's somebody who really <laughs> wanted publicity for the article. Yeah, like, we're not even that big of a website. Maybe he thought, you know, we're bigger than him, so at least that's one step up. I don't know. But, like, <laughs> that was just one of those things where I was like, okay, technically this is in a peer-reviewed journal. You checked all my boxes, but I'm still rejecting this. And explaining why that is, like, I had the algorithm has to be in a peer-reviewed journal, right? And you know, has to be summarized by somebody else, not yourself. So he, he, he's checked those boxes off and I still wouldn't accept it because it was still, there was something wrong with that whole process. Right. Oh, yeah. So you started a journal just to get it summarized yeah. somewhere else. That's just, no, 
And then how do you tell a student, well, you know, if you find this paper randomly and it's been peer reviewed, um, does that mean that it's true? Well, no, because then you have to know behind the scenes, like, yeah, this journal was kind of started by two guys that just wanted to wanted to give fake credibility to their ideas and have a quick path to publishing without all that pesky editing. <laughs> so, um, you know, but how would the student know that? You know, you have to be able to spot it. And a lot of it was sort of uh, in the, their communication style and the email and just the way the conversation went where I was like, I've seen this kind of thing before. But I, when I was an undergrad, if someone had explained all that to me, I wouldn't have been able to spot it. So mm -hmm. it, it just takes experience to like, you know, you're, you're building lots and lots and lots of little correlations that you could never put into an algorithm. Yeah, definitely. So it's it's all that kind of tacit knowledge, which is which helps with those kinds of things. And it's some of those kinds of things we have to figure out how to teach to to undergrad science students, to be honest. But um, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation of the education needs of yeah undergrad STEM majors at this point. <laughs> yeah, and there it's a long list of of educational needs. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that was just the example I could think of off the top of my head. Cause that was, you know, yeah, no, that's a, to, that's a good thing, to your point. Yeah. Yeah. I try to explain, Oh, you go, you know, when I'm coding something on a computer, you go, you go do this, do this over here and, uh, and it magically appears kind of thing. Well, I got to remember there's all these steps in the middle of what commands and what functions and this kind of stuff. That's just, I do yeah. so much that it's like comes to me in an instant. Yeah. <laughs> And even learning math as a child, like if your math teacher is not mindful of what uh, what it's like to not understand the, you know, I, when I was a, a student in math class in high school, I used to get really emotionally like uh, wound up over like, but you skipped like four steps. I don't know what you're doing inside your head. You have to tell me that. And I yeah. think in some some of them are not very good at telling people what the steps are and some really are. And those are the good math teachers that change your life, but there are so few of them. <laughs> I so. used to tutor statistics and I had one student where this was the opposite problem. Actually, she mm -hmm. loved the shortcuts and would go with the shortcuts whenever she could with the statistics thing. So I, I had to do something to make her realize that uh, that isn't going to work for you all the time to use the shortcuts and statistics so yeah. I crafted a whole bunch of questions on a practice test for her that I knew the shortcuts wouldn't work. <laughs> oh, very, very good. Did she learn from them? She learned her lesson after that. Yes. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's some good teaching. Good job. <laughs> um, I like that he hits on the Turing test. I don't know if a lot of people in the internetosphere know what the Turing test is. And I, I didn't actually know either until... I started hanging out with astrobiologists who are concerned with identifying what intelligence is, which mm -hmm. they're kind of moving away from that now. But um, the uh, the Turing test is, let's see if he has a really good definition of it that I can jump to really quick so I don't butcher it. But it's, it, oh, Alan Turing uh, is the scientist that developed it. And it is... Uh, Oh, yeah, here we go. Alan Turing asked the question, how can we determine if computers have acquired general intelligence? He starts by saying that the question he tries to answer is, can machines think? But instead of going into the question of what intelligence is, he sets up a game. In the game, a questioner can communicate with a computer and a human being. He has to communicate through a keyboard. 
So he does not know who is the computer and who is the human. The point is that the machine pretends to be a human and it's the job of the questioner to decide which of the two is the computer and who is the human. If the questioner is unable to distinguish, we can say the computer is intelligent. Turing called this the imitation game, but it's later known as the Turing test. So if the computer passes the test, then it has acquired general intelligence. So this is like, you know, if it passes the Turing test, then it's indistinguishable from human intelligence. Right. And, and it's, a, it's, a course, it's a course measure because you could say, like, if you're talking to ChatGPT, I've gone into ChatGPT and like just told it my feelings and asked, you know, like I've asked it for, you know, I tried to have like a human type of interaction with it. Um, and it sometimes really does feel like a real person in certain circumstances. It's possible that I could be fooled and it might pass the Turing test in some instances, but, exactly. in, but then in others, uh, you can definitely tell that it's a computer. Like this one time I was like, show me uh, a well-cited paper on, I forget what it was that I was asking for. And it sent me a link and, and I said, can you send me the citation and the link? And it, so it did, so I could uh, fact check it. And I went to the link, the link was broken. I went back and I said, that link is broken. I'm sorry. Uh, here, here, I had a typo in the link and I clicked on that link and the link was still broken. And then eventually it got me a working link, but it was to the wrong paper. So you could completely tell that it was just saying, I'm sorry about that. Let me make a correction. Like it was sounding polite, but the answers it was pushing back to me were like kind of nonsense. So yeah. Yeah, it's actually in the section just after that, that the author of this paper redid the Turing test with um, with one of the chatbots um, that, that somebody the, the else real, developed. Is that Hang the on. real Turing test section? Yeah, the real Turing test. So uh, there's an annual competition award. Um, the program Mitsuki, Mitsuku won in 2013, 16, 17, 18, and 19. A lot of awards. The philosopher Lucanio Floridi recounts how he joined the judging panel when the competition was first held in England in 2008. One of the judges started with the question, if we take each other's hand, whose hand am I holding then? The computer oh, yeah. by talking about something completely different. We live in eternity, so yeah, no, we don't believe. Another question was, the four capital cities of England are three, Manchester and Liverpool. What's wrong with this sense? The computer had no meaningful answer. The conversation Floridi refers to took place more than 10 years ago. I was curious to see if the program had improved. I have tried it out several times and it has not improved much. Below is an example. When Mitsuku was, in 2008 was asked, if we take each other's hand, whose hand am I holding? The computer failed. This time it came out with the right answer. However, it did not take long before it failed. In the printout below, Millie can either be Mitsuku the computer or a human. At the end of the conversation, one is supposed to guess if one talked to a computer or to a human being. It was not difficult to determine that I had talked to a computer. Here is the conversation. It's uh, kind of funny. <laughs> it's a funny conversation, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Mitsuku chatbot. Welcome, Ragnar. Now talking. Topic is Turing test set by admin. If I shake your hand, whose hand am I holding? I will be holding yours and, and is spelled wrong, by the way, um, mm. and you will be holding mine. What's with the dumb question? <laughs> so this chatbot is kind of rude. <laughs> it's a rude chatbot, yeah. yeah. Why is the question dumb? 
I want to know everything about you, is how Millie responds. But you did not explain why you regarded the question as dumb, Ragnar responds. So Millie responds back, sorry, I must have forgot. What was your question again? Ragnar says, if we shake hands, whose hand am I holding? And Millie responds, we would be holding each other's hands. And then Ragnar responds, you know, and why is that a dumb question? Millie's closing remark is, why do I exist? <laughs> why do we, why do any of us exist, Millie? I don't know. <laughs> it's computers, a good question. <laughs> yeah, and here's, and here's the final thing. Computers fail because they are not in the world. Mitsuku fair, uh, characterized the first question as dumb, but could not explain why. Any child would be able to do that. So. Yep. Yeah, and the Turing test was from the 50s, so that's been around for quite some time, and it's a fairly foundational AI idea, I think, and oh, yeah. um, and really, we're not too much further along in developing AI than we were, um, you know, back when that Mitsuku chatbot conversation occurred. So, you know, it... it the increased computing powder powder power has made it so we can do a lot more. Now he talks about this in a lot more eloquent way, the latest type big data and neural networks. So we yeah. have that now that's the new thing, but neural nets have been actually what I messed with. And I do uh, understand at a basic level how they work because they are designed to mimic the human brain in that, you know, you have however many neurons that you have in your head and they're all connected together, making making really quick decisions and learning very quickly about things that are going on. Um, yep. But I can tell you one thing. I When I have tried working with neural nets myself, they are extremely computationally intense to do. Mm -hmm. And there's still no guarantee, and there's absolutely no guarantee even that you'll get it right or that they'll get it right yeah. after you've trained it. Yeah, one of our... Uh, writers talked about this AlphaGo um, uh, neural network that played Go. That uh, that other sort of I forget how to describe it. Is it a, is it a Chinese or a Japanese yeah, game? It's a Chinese uh, game. It's a board game in China two thousand years ago. Okay, yeah, and it's very it's much more complex than chess, um, and was I guess for a long time thought to not be possible to do on a computer because of its complexity, but now we have neural networks. And so that made it possible for the, the computer to handle the amount of data that would be required to play Go um, on a computer like that. So uh, the you should go on YouTube and actually watch the Go, the AlphaGo versus the, the guy competitions they're really intense. <laughs> it's it's some good television, <laughs> but um, it's a pretty potent strategy game. Um, that's not right. Um, I was gonna look real quick to see. Oh, what like how to play it? Yeah, that's probably good to explain. I have no idea. Well, I I don't know that we need to explain it as much as just show a little bit of of um where it is um, or what it is because it's this is off of wikipedia so take that for what you will but um go the game here um played on a grid with black and white pieces and um pretty abstract um game invented in tw 2500 years ago or more than 2500 years ago in china um and it's the oldest board game that's continuously played to the present day so people actually still play this game <laughs> so 
Mm -hmm. it, um, it's pretty powerful. The idea is it's 19 by 19, 361 points um, on the grid, but um, yeah, it's actually extremely complex compared and more so than chess. So, um, but it has pretty much the same kind of idea. You're, it's a strategy game where you're supposed to get, um, get one group of stones surrounded by the other group of stones. You're just like boxing in somebody. Right. So unlike yeah. chess, where chess is like basically capturing the pieces and getting the king. Yeah. And it's like this sort of, it's more like war in a way where you're, mm -hmm. you're just kind of trying to head off. But yeah, the go seems a lot more, uh, a lot more like complex. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, so big data made, made it possible to just do like bigger, better, faster versions of what we we did in the 80s, 90s, and the O's. Um, so does that mean we're any closer to AGI? It seems not really. <laughs> so um, no, yeah. mean, even with big data, and I, for, the, for those of you who don't know, of course, I might be new to this, I work in the climate science and modeling world. And so big data is part, part of my job just inherently at this point, because it is terabytes, if not petabytes of data on a regular basis to manipulate. Um, uh, manipulate sounds like a bad thing, but it just really means you're working with the data. It doesn't mean, doesn't yeah. mean like doing anything nefarious. Right. Um, but people want to think that more equals better, but that's not necessarily true because more just means more information. It doesn't mean more knowledge. Yeah, qu uh, quality over quantity, mm -hmm. or qu the other way around. It's quantity yeah. over quality with big well, data. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so there's there are a lot of articles, and I guess this is the cultural part of it. The end of theory, the data deluge makes the scientific method obsolete. So that type of mindset is what is beyond, behind. I'll I'll paste this in our little private chat if you want to put it up on the screen i think i think if you want to you should be able to share because there's a thing that's called oh. present on the oh. bottom of the stream yard window yeah. so i just okay. have to add it to the stream because i'm hosting oh okay hold on let me see share screen uh select window there we go oh how cool i can share too all right is it popped up there it is ho oh, ho look at that look at us being technological and fancy okay <laughs> So this is not necessarily like the, the, the article to represent all articles on this viewpoint. So I just picked it at random because it had a really provocative headline. But this is, is it, the kind of the article we meant we're, we were reading too. So, oh, it was. Okay. Yeah, I saw, I saw the title mentioned at one point. So, yeah, this is a, a viewpoint that I think is sort of the opposing viewpoint to the uh, paper that we chose for this episode. Um, so it is, let's see, I want to find, yeah, this is, uh, this is disturbing to me. And I, I, I wish that I had the philosophical prowess to take, take this kind of stuff down, but it looks like our pal um, uh, Ragnar uh, has done his best. So um, learning to use a computer of this scale meaning, you know, whatever he was talking about before. Um, uh, one of big the big data, data successes, yeah. 
The opportunity is great. The new availability of huge amounts of data, along with the statistical tools to crunch these numbers, offers a whole new way of understanding the world. Correlation supersedes causation, and science can advance even without coherent models, unified theories, or really any mechanistic explanation at all. There's really no reason to cling to our old ways. It's time to ask, what can science learn from Google? So, no. (laughs) Yeah, no. No, I can actually give you another practical model why that doesn't work because 1960s, our primary understanding of the climate was atmosphere and ocean. And that was about it. I can turn this off if you like. Um, Oh, yeah. How do I? Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the viewers were able to see just like how many more hits there are on that topic. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's primarily atmosphere and ocean. And so 1960s, it was, you know, simple atmosphere, the ocean. It was pretty much a bathtub model, a simple model of the atmosphere, bathtub model of the ocean in the 1960s. Um, now, if that was all there was in our understanding of the world, you know, all you needed to understand the world, that would have worked fine. But in the time since the 1960s, when weather models and climate models were first created, um, We've added to our knowledge base because we've been pursuing the causal interactions a tremendous number of physical processes, and we are still adding a tremendous number of physical processes. So if you're not seeking the causation, you're inherently omitting something that causes the correlation to <laughs> begin with. Yeah. Um, and so your model's yeah. not going to be successful in prediction. So, and this is kind of represented now because to be the current generation of climate models includes things like biogeochemistry and hydrology and ecology and the interactions between atmosphere and ocean and land and a much more complicated ocean model and, you know, atmosphere and ice, ocean and ice, land and ice interactions, all of those kinds of gigantic features and things that make our world extremely complicated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. But that's something you need causation to even understand that you need to represent those physical processes and capture some of the data from them to begin with. So it almost gets to be like chicken and egg thing is, you know, does the data reveal the correlation and you get to the causation or does the causation tell you you need more data? Well, a lot of hypotheses are developed because of tacit experiences that humans have. So like, how do you how do you explain how you got an idea for one of your papers? Like, maybe you got it from another paper, but why did you think to ask that question in that way, you know, to begin with? Well, that's yeah, that, that would be a good, interesting test for chat GPT. You know that ask mm. a, you know, ask it a general question and then ask it, what gives you that idea? That's kind of what he did in his like uh, Millie conversation. Why yeah. do you say that? Yeah. Have it explain an answer. Well, yeah. ChatGPT gets mad when you ask it to cite its sources. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It you says, like, as a, I'm a natural language model. I uh, gain my knowledge from all sorts of different places and don't have the ability to tell you the specific sources. Like, you get I'm an F. <laughs> I'm just curious to try this and see, because I have a... Uh... I do have an account for open a, uh, for open AI to play with chat GPT. So I'm just kind of curious to try that on the fly. Yeah. At, so basically what I would do is I would ask it a science question and then it would tell me its answer. And then I would say, what are the sources that you used to come up with that answer? And then it would give me that response. 
OpenAI. Let's go. Chat GPT. Are you putting that up on the screen? I, I will in a second. I just wanted to get logged in first. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't want to search that part. Next. I remember Popper talking about Wittgenstein, and I have to go back now and read what he said because I don't know. I all these philosophers' names are all familiar to me, but you know, didn't major in that, so it it's all kind of just like, oh, I've seen that before. What is that again? I'm gonna have to go back and do a review. But yep. Okay. Anyway. So let's see. What question do we want to ask? To start things off. Um, how about, how does a planet form? A nine-year-old kid asked my husband that last week, so. <laughs> thinking, thinking. <laughs> it's always fun to watch. Yeah. I like how it gives the answer in, in like a list. Sometimes it'll do that. For like gardening questions and I'm like I really just needed like a short anyway okay <laughs> so it kind of doesn't really matter it gave us a bunch of information so now you could ask it uh, what sources did you use to come up with that answer I'll be like really embarrassed if it actually gives sources because it'll make me look like I mean, a liar but... you know. ah there we go yep <laughs> No citable yep. answer. No. Yeah, it doesn't like when you ask it to cite its sources. So, yeah. Why do you think that you're... Aha. Uh -huh. Huh. So process of planet formation that I described in my initial response is based on a widely accepted scientific theory known as nebular hypothesis. I don't think nebular hypothesis counts as a theory. It's a hypothesis. Yeah. <laughs> this hypothesis <laughs> developed through decades of research. How? So this okay. is like you some serious you. logical fallacies here too, actually. Yeah, uh, how do you know that? And that's, that might be, well, how do you know that nebular hypothesis is the widely accepted scientific theory of planet formation? What are your sources for that? Thinking, thinking, thinking. There we go. It just repeated. <laughs> okay, for, for our listening audience, hold on. The nebular hypothesis is indeed a widely accepted scientific theory of planet formation. It has been developed and refined over many years through the work of numerous scientists and researchers in the field of planetary science. The primary source of this information uh, for the acceptance of the nebular hypothesis comes from scientific literature, research papers, and textbooks that discuss the topic of planet formation. While I don't have direct access to my training data, I was trained on a mixture of licensed data, data created by human trainers, and publicly available data. These sources may contain information from scientific literature and textbooks that discuss the nebular hypothesis and its acceptance within the, client, uh, within the scientific community. 
It is important to note that scientific theories are not considered absolute truths and are subject to revision as new evidence emerges. The acceptance of the nebular hypothesis as the leading theory of planet formation is based on the consensus of the scientific community, which is formed mm -hmm. through the evaluation and synthesis of evidence from various sources, including observations, experiments, computer simulations, and theoretical models. In other words, it just repeated an answer and didn't give me a new answer to my question. No, because uh, it it's not able to explain its own thought process because it does not think. Exactly. That's his point in this whole paper is computers can't think. Exactly. Computers cannot think. Therefore, you're not necessarily yeah. going to get to actual intelligence. And you know what's a little disturbing about this? And I, I'm going to go out on a limb and hopefully I don't sound like a complete jackass for saying this. But this kind of sounds like when you ask an activist why they think what they think about any topic. <laughs> this you know, is the kind of answer... I was just going to say that because this happens in a lot of different fields where it's just like, it's the science! Yeah. Well, this is just what's the evidence. This is just what the consensus is. That's exactly like, what it is. Um, that's I'm, not. That's not thinking. If I do this. What did you say? I I I'm just oh. curious how mad it'll get if I do this. I want to know your specific sources used. Yeah, it just repeats itself. It just keeps <laughs> saying, I can't do that. So, yeah. So this is like... It doesn't, have, it doesn't have the ability to think and tell you what sources it actually used. It doesn't self-analyze. That yeah. is a feature of the, of humans that we can, you know, on to varying degrees of ability, some of us are not as good at that as others being self-reflective <laughs> and understanding why you think what you think. Um but it is very frustrating, actually, when you talk to real human beings on the Internet and they give you these kinds of answers and you're like, but I want to understand how you came to that conclusion. <laughs> Here we go. I just, said, I just said, so no citations. That's correct. As an AI language model, I don't have the ability to provide specific citations or references. The information I generate is based on the training data I've been provided, which consists of a wide range of sources such as books, websites, and other texts. I don't have direct access to a bibliography or a way to retrieve specific citations for individual pieces of information. If mm -hmm. you're looking for specific sources or want to delve deeper into a particular topic, I recommend consulting scientific literature, academic journals, textbooks, or reputable online sources. These sources can provide you with more detailed information and references you may need for further exploration. So ChatGPT is not the end of writing. It is not the end of thinking. It's not the end of research papers. It's fine. We're going to be all right, you guys. <laughs> so it just made me laugh so hard. Okay. That was a fun little experiment to demonstrate the uh, the author's point. <laughs> yeah, it was. That was a good one. I'm glad we caught that live on camera. It, it was that was completely unscripted and unplanned. <laughs> so yeah, for our audio listeners, you can see the full video of that on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Poor audio listeners. That was a fun one. Um, yeah, so I think, um, well, you did read a bunch of it, so that probably did help, but yeah, so I think, I think we've somewhat reached the end of all of the points that could be made, but you should, you meaning the, the viewer and listener should super go read this paper because it's really, it's not very long, so it's not going to like take, 
you know, weeks of your time to sort through. The writing's pretty good. The guy makes makes it accessible. Yeah, it's it's like seven pages text, so it's actually a really, really short article to read. But um, I think I think one of the closing things actually makes the point in a very grim kind of manner. Um, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm thinking of the of the uh, the Rozak example at the end. Mm. Um, okay, contrary to this, her. Husserl insists that the sciences are fundamentally a human endeavor. Even the most abstract theories are grounded in our everyday world, Husserl's life world, as he calls it. Um, Husserl mentions Einstein's theory of relativity and argues that it is dependent on Michelson's experiments and the corroborations, corroborations of them by other researchers. To carry out this kind of experiment, there's a typo in that sentence, the, the scientists must be able to move around, to handle instruments, to read scales, and to communicate with other scientists. There is a much more credible account of how we are able to understand other people than the one given by Harari. As Hubert Dreyfus points out, we are bodily and social beings living in a material and social world. To understand another person is not to look into the chemistry of that person's brain, not even into that person's soul, but rather to be in that person's shoes. It is to understand the person's life world. The author, the American author Theodore Rozak, has constructed a thought example to illustrate this point. Let us imagine that we are watching a psychiatrist at work. I'm going to presume this is an unwoke psychiatrist, but anyway. Um, yeah, one, they still exist. <laughs> He is a hardworking and skilled psychiatrist and obviously has a very good practice. The waiting room is full of patients with a variety of emotional and mental disorders. Some are almost hysterical. Some have strong suicidal thoughts, some hallucinations, some have the cruelest nightmares, and some are driven to madness by the thought that they are being watched by people who will hurt them. The psychiatrist listens attentively to each patient and does his best to help them, but without much success. On the contrary, they all seem to be getting worse, despite psychiatrists' heroic efforts. Now Rosiak asks us to put this into a larger context. The psychiatrist's office is in a building, and the building is in a place. This place is Buchenwald, and the prisoners and the patients, patients are prisoners in the concentration camp. Biogeochemical algorithms would not help us understand the patients. What does help, in fact, is what is imperative is to know the larger context. The example simply does not make sense if we do not know that the psychiatrist's office is in a concentration camp. Only few of us are able to put ourselves in the shoes of a prisoner of a concentration camp. Therefore, we cannot fully understand people in situations that are very different from what we have ourselves experienced. But to some degree, we can understand, and we can understand because we are also in the world. Computers are not in our world. I have earlier said that neural networks need to be pro- need not to be programmed and therefore can handle tacit knowledge. However, it is simply not true, as some of the advocates of big data argue, that the data speak for themselves. Normally, the data used are related to one or more models. They are selected by humans, and in the end, they consist of numbers. Yeah, that's a very grim example. And actually, I had this thought as we, you were reading that, that it almost sounds a little bit like constructivism. And that is interesting because constructivism is itself not complete bunk because 
uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be postmodern to be constructivist. So you can still use constructivism to think through things uh, that maybe where the sum, where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So mm. what he says is true that like there are some questions that really can't be fully answered without considering social context. Yep. And that's, that's something that ironically the woke say a lot, but when you mix it with postmodernism, that's when it gets crazy, but that isn't completely wrong. Um, yeah. Obviously. So, but he does actually say to some degree we can understand because we're also in the world so that kind of deviates from what the woke say is that we can never understand each other. Well, we're all in the world, so we can. But the computer is not in the world at all. This is not the same dichotomy as like a, a man and a woman or a white person and a black person. This is like a human and a non-human. <laughs> so, a human is something created by a human for that yeah, matter. Yeah, a human and a machine, which isn't even really, it isn't even fair to say a non-human because a cat is in the world. A cat is has more tacit knowledge than the computer. So, yeah. So, yeah, this is, yeah, that's a very stark example. Um, but he, that was brave of him to actually include that as his example. Usually uh, people bristle at references to that time of history. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. but yeah. Um, yeah. So what is this last paragraph where they were talking about? Okay. The number of words in the English. Uh, the, the, yeah. That's the paragraph about overestimating the power of AI and how it yeah. may have detrimental effects on science, which I, I wish he had spent a little bit more time to elaborate on that because mm -hmm. I do think it's a very good point. I yeah. have been worried about the usage of AI to really push scientists away from actually figuring out causal relationships. Um, and I think, what is it? it he, he, he's using um, the notation that, oh yeah, you know, fame comes much more quickly, you know, like 20th century interest in evolution was declining until Watson and Crick discovered DNA, um, which allegedly be, leads to better understanding prediction, in other words, of better science via digitization was the idea. And his his thought in response to that is that um, Karl Popper's insight in 1981, too many dollars chase may chase too few ideas. Yeah. 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 I think that, again, the patron saint of thinking, Karl Popper, I'm kidding. I gotta read more of his books. I haven't had the chance yet. Yeah, no, they they take a long time. Me um, re retiring from academia gave me a lot more time to get through those. <laughs> but admittedly, the only one I've read from start to finish is the Open Society. I've read I've read aspects of it more than once, but the um, the other ones, conjectures and refutations, and the logic of scientific discovery are really dense, and you got to know something about quantum physics, to, I think, to really appreciate all of what he's talking about in there. But I've read a couple chapters out of each of those, the ones that were relevant to like um, critical rationalism's like main engine. But yeah, there's a lot more there that I haven't read either because my brain might explode. I'm really not as smart as I pretend I am. <laughs> so. No, no, no. You are very smart. Thanks, man. So are you. <laughs> No, I mean, seriously, 
I'm glad that we're talking about this stuff because actually I haven't seen anyone online talking about the topic in this way. No, it's almost I mean, entirely been panic pieces about AI taking over the world. And then the other side is AI is awesome and is going to save us all from all of our problems. Like I've never seen anyone go. either. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. No, it's not. It's just a fancy regression that's bigger, faster, louder, harder, whatever, you know? So it's, so we can be wrong faster now. <laughs> so with much more expensive faster. computers. <laughs> but yeah, okay. I don't have anything else to add, but this was a fascinating article. And, and I like you encourage our viewers and listeners to go uh, to go read the article because you'd have a good time. And yeah, it really does. It really does get you thinking because I think the hyperbole on both sides, like you were saying, is overblown. Yeah. And you know, if you were, a how can a hyperbole be overblown? That yeah, that's redundant, I guess. <laughs> it's I just think really noise really... on both sides is overblown. Let's put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> and I think if anybody like myself, for until I found this article, I was you know kind of an anxious about like what does it mean that we have all this now? And my previous career path was in writing. So chat GPT freaked me out at first. Cause I was like, Oh God, why are we, why are we talking about like writing skills becoming obsolete? We, we actually overwrote rhetoric skills with teaching writing instead. And now we're talking about getting rid of writing too. And I, I, I got really depressed actually for a little while. Cause I thought, well, I don't know, self-interest. I studied writing, uh, you know, I honed that skill over my whole life, basically, since I was a little small child with a pile of notebooks. And so in a way, I was like, oh, well, the one skill I had was is about to be obsolete. But then once I dug into it, I was like, oh, no, I don't have anything to worry about here. And it, more importantly, the thinking part is more critical. Like, in some, sometimes I would love to have like AI do the kind of annoying writing, like the sort of formalities that you have to do in, in work life, you know, like, oh, I had to write a, a, a letter of reference and I wanted like AI to be able to do it for me because I just hate writing those kinds of things. But the thinking writing, like the real creative writing, I, it seems impossible for AI to really replicate that. And a lot of people online have figured that out too, where chat GPT can regurgitate, but it can't create new ideas. So all we're going to see is basically, this is like fancy plagiarism. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I've heard about folks wanting to try and incorporate AI into their, into their class teaching. And I'm just like, nah, you're just going to get fancy plagiarism. That's yeah. You could, you could incorporate chat GPT into teaching the way we did in this episode where you can teach people about logical fallacies and, and uh, the difference between human thinking and, and big data and machine learning, that would be a valuable way of, of doing it. I know there's even uh, science communication is now like all into what if we could use uh, chat GPT to help us with science communication. And I have heard my, about that. I just my, don't my successor, that <laughs> yeah, my successor at uh, Cyworthy had this great newsletter um, I still, I still uh, stalk them every so often to see how things are going, and it looks like it's going well. So I'm happy to see that all that is not gone. So she did this cool newsletter where she actually treated ChatGPT like a student, 
and had it explain a bunch of things that she knew from her field of expertise just to see how it characterized the, the scientific data until this point. Like, how did it represent what's currently known about what she studies? And so she did like a line by line thing. And it was good. I think it, you know, for for people who aren't in, in science and SciComm, it made it evident that, you know, we're a long way away from being able to use that to replace ourselves. So, yeah. So never fear. Humans still matter. Humans still <laughs> matter. Humans are still awesome. Yeah. At least most Sometimes. of the time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's not be hyperbolic either. <laughs> we, are, yeah. we are after the truth. As yeah, we, yeah, we're hopefully anyway after the truth for the most part. And then it's some and sometimes we slip into wishing for a perfect world. So, you know, got to temper both of those things in a way. Exactly. So, all right. All right well, I guess that's it for AI for the evening. And yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks for watching and uh, leave us comment. Tell us what you think of the article, of our take on the article. If you're in the AI field, let us know if you've seen this and what you think of it and anything else that you might, uh, that you might have funny phone rings, maybe what you think of goat screams, you know, whatever. I'm gonna put that in a blooper reel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then thanks everybody. You can go check everything out and leave us some comments on the way out the door. Thanks much. We hope you all stay curious. Farewell. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rogue Journal Club. If you want to suggest articles for the show, please consider becoming a supporter of shiasofia.locals.com. The link for the Locals community is available in the show notes. The Rogue Journal Club is a Shia Sophia production. Copyright 2022.